I consider passive investing to be a very small percentage of what people are doing, but you're doing, you're staying away from the herd, right? You want to stay away from the herd when it comes to like being greedy when others are fearful, same concept. It's the exact same concept, but the concept of cash flow seems so foreign to so many people because it's not allowed to be marketed and people don't even know it's there as an option. But often some of the best things you'll find in life are the ones that are staying away from the herd and thinking differently. And the thinking differently and staying away from the herd is just as an investor, hugely important, can make huge differences as far as your long-term goals and, and, you know, success. With no limitations, what does your perfect day look like? What if it's possible to live like that every day? Would you wake up after 9 a.m., have perfect health, maybe fire your boss, have the money and freedom to do what you love most? The world is your oyster. Where would you be? Who would you be with? The possibilities are endless. Whether you believe it's possible for you or not, you can make more, work less, and live free. Welcome to Freedom Hack Radio, where entrepreneur, best-selling author, world traveler, and adventurer, Bryce Robertson, and special guests crack the code on money, health, relationships, spirituality, and having fun doing what you love most. Be inspired to create your own self-designed freedom lifestyle. Welcome back to another episode of Freedom Hack Radio, where you can learn to create the freedom trinity in your life of financial freedom, time freedom, and location freedom, and live free in fulfillment, maintaining balance and growth in financial wealth, health, relationships, spirituality, and having fun doing what you love most. I'm your host, Bryce Robertson, and today we are going to discuss how to conservatively approach investments in today's economic and social landscape. There's been a lot of disorder so far in 2020, so how do we navigate this? How do we avoid costly mistakes, and how can we maximize profits? And to discuss all this, we have a very special guest, the legendary Jeremy Jeremy Roll from Roll Investment group. Jeremy Roll has been an active real estate and business investor for more than 18 years. He left the corporate world in 2007 to become a full-time passive cash flow investor with more than 70 opportunities and over 500 million worth of real estate and business assets. As founder and president of Roll Investment Group, Jeremy manages a group of over 1,000 investors in the US and Canada who seek passive, managed, cash flow investments in real estate and business. Jeremy also co-founded a non-profit organization called For Investors by Investors, aka Phoebe. This was founded in 2007 with the goal of networking with, learning from, and helping other investors in a strict no-sales pitch environment. Phoebe is now the largest group of public real estate investor meetings in California with over 25,000 members. Jeremy is originally from Montreal, is a licensed California real estate broker for investing purposes only, and has an MBA from the Wharton School and is an advisor for Realty Mogul, the largest real estate crowdfunding website in the US. And Jeremy is co-founder of the annual Intelligent Investors Real Estate Conference in Los Angeles, California. And I can tell you firsthand that Jeremy is an extremely humble man. He's very well researched. He's an ultra conservative in his investment evaluation and approach. And he's very dedicated and driven. He's a phenomenal networker. He's super reliable and honest. He's polite and well-spoken. And he's an all-round top bloke. So Jeremy, welcome to the show. 
Thank you. That was, that was quite an introduction. I hope I'm not blushing, but <laughs> I, I want to put two things out there. First of all, I want to thank you for having me on the show. Number one, for anyone who's watching, I think we're recording this in June of 2020, which is important, but also I have COVID hair that I'm hoping to get taken care of soon. I was telling Bryce, I couldn't quite get an order for the podcast, but in any event, so I apologize to those who are seeing me like this. Um, also, uh, if you have, and I'm going to plug Bryce, he doesn't even know I was going to do this, but for those of you who have not read a economic update email that he sent, it was about a month or two ago, I think. Uh, regarding the current recession, COVID, and the rest of it. He did a tremendous amount of research. It was very well written, um, really good insight. Uh, I don't say that lightly. I don't often recommend things like that. So if you have not read it, I would re recommend reach out to Bryce and try and get a copy of it. It was just really well done. So thank you for putting the time into putting that together, honestly. Thanks, Jeremy. Awesome. Thanks, mate. So quick disclosure before we get into it. And I'm very glad that you just told everybody uh, when we, what time frame we're in, because a lot of the things we're going to talk about are very specific to, to where we are right now. And a quick disclosure for everybody who's watching and listening right now, um, Jeremy and I, neither of us are financial advisors. We're not CPA. We're not legal advisors. This is for educational purposes only. We're basically telling you uh, our opinion on things, uh, maybe some things that we're doing, some, some perspectives that we have, but none of this is and investment advice. If you want to get your own advice, get seek counsel from your own financial advisors, CPA and attorney. And again, this is for educational purposes only. So um, a place I'd really like to start today, Jeremy, um, I'm really keen to know what's got you feeling the most gratitude right now? What things in life uh, are you most thankful for? Yes. Well, first of all, I'm very thankful for my health at the moment, as you can imagine. Uh, very thankful for the fact that I live uh, in a home where my kids, you know, even though we're all like pretty much self-quarantined here, we're being very careful with this because my younger son has had major medical challenges in the past, was actually went through a very similar thing. I wouldn't say exactly like COVID, but he was on from a virus. He ended up on a ventilator for seven days when he was a year and a half old. He ended up with permanent airway scarring, like a lot of the stuff that can happen with COVID. So we have to be very careful with him. So I'm very thankful that we have like, you know, I'm in LA. We have a backyard that's big enough for them to play. We have a house that's big enough for me to work or for them to be home and to learn for school and all that kind of thing. So that's, a, that's really nice. And I'm certainly thankful for the fact that I've got my family to live with here. And uh, I, I guess it doesn't hurt that it's sunny in LA every day. So we certainly pay enough rent for it. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's very nice that I'm in LA as well. So uh, there's many more things as well, but those are the immediate ones that come to mind. That's awesome. And, you know, I think that that's a really relevant thing that probably everybody's thinking about right now. Everybody has the opportunity to be thinking, well, do I really like where I live? Do I really like the people that I live with? Because it, what's happening recently has kind of forced us into a situation where we're more exposed to these things. So yeah, I opportunity. Want, Sorry? yeah, I want to add one more thing that really is should have been obvious to someone like me, but I'm a full-time passive cash flow investor and I'm extremely thankful for cash flow. Uh, you know, we're in the middle of a recession. Um, some of my cash flow has stopped. Most of it's still coming in. It has stopped in terms of just being put on hold for conservative purposes for the most part. But, you know, I'm very thankful for cash flow, especially during recession, especially in stuff that's continuing to perform. And um, I, I don't want to sound like an infomercial, but cash flow completely changed my life. And I kind of, it's easy for me to take it for granted at this point. I'm just used to it, used to it coming in because it's been like so many years. But uh, that's a huge thing I'm thankful for as well. Sorry to interrupt you. 
No, no, that's awesome. I mean, that that's perfect. That's, that's, you know, some people right now don't have jobs. They kind of lost all of their income and you're coming from a perspective where you're saying, Hey, yeah, I'm a passive investor. Uh, some of my income has stopped, but a lot of it's still there. So that's, that's awesome. So did you always know that you were going to be a passive income investor or like, was it something you knew instinctively as a child and you worked towards, or was there some kind of pivotal points in your life where you decided, all right, I really need to make a shift here and here's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Great question. So the, I have two parts that answer. First part is um, there was a, there was a pivotal moment that led me down this path, but the path wasn't actually meant for me to be full-time passive cash flow investor. So I'll explain all this. So uh, back in 2002, I'm working in the corporate world at Disney headquarters in Burbank here in LA. I was kind of a middle level manager in marketing um, across all their DVD and VHS products. Um, and, you know, great brands, Disney, Miramax, ESPN, Touchdown, like a lot of, you know, a lot of ESPN sports, a lot of stuff. In any event, the dot-com crash happens for those of you who are old enough, you know, in the stock market. And I was just sick and tired of two things in the stock market. One was uh, the, the volatility, which is kind of obvious, right? I'm a really low risk as, as, Bryce mentioned, like on a slow and steady guy. And to watch the market go up and down 30% a year, just not for me in terms of especially where my retirement account was going to be down the road as a strategy. But even more importantly, the lack of predictability is really what bothered me the most, right? Not being able to kind of have a plan for the next 10, 20, 30 years, because I'm watching everything go down 30% a year. Well, how does that adjust, you know, in the future? And by the way, is that going to happen again in three years from now, right? So um, I looked at different ways to invest, came across the concept of cash flow and uh, kind of looked at some real estate as a hard asset based type of opportunity that could generate cash flow. I ended up targeting relatively low risk uh, passive cash flow. It wasn't just real estate that I started with, but it was some real estate as well. So that's kind of how I got down the path. That was the pivotal moment for sure, like no doubt. The other part though, so when I went down that path, I didn't mean to actually try to generate passive cash flow to live off of. I, I actually talked to a lot of investors over time who say, look, I want to get out of the corporate world. I'm going to have a five or 10 year plan. I just spoke to somebody, I think it was last week about this. Um, and they kind of say, okay, I'm going to put X amount of dollars to work each year and I'm going to get out of the corporate world after Y number of years. And I love watching that happen because I've seen many people actually achieve it and it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. But um, for me, it was more about having the paycheck and the cash flow because the cash flow just meant to be more predictable on the retirement account side, right? Uh, I also thought I could do a bit better with the returns versus the stock market, but that's kind of secondary. So I had a last straw moment in 2007 and a half. I was actually working at the Toyota headquarters in LA as well. And I had a transfer divisions at the beginning of the year. And I just was not getting along well with my new manager, which was really rare for me. Um, and I decided to take a chance and leave the corporate world because enough cash flow built up to live off of at that point. It wasn't meant for that. It was meant to supplement the paycheck. But I decided to take that risk because the corporate world was always a uh, kind of a tough place for me. I never really felt like I was maximizing my potential, but frankly, I never really knew what the better solution was. So I did over 10 years in the corporate world, plus the war MBA and everything else. I was going down a typical corporate track. So I had that pivotal moment on the dot-com piece that put me on this path. And then I had the pivotal moment, which is like, turns out to be the best thing that happened to me was actually the challenge I have with my manager, right? That actually got me out of the corporate world and allowed me to leverage the cash flow to be able to do so, but it wasn't really designed for that to begin with. 
Yeah, funny how things like that happen, you know, in, in moments of crisis, we are probably right on the precipice of something really, really awesome happening. Uh, that's great. And uh, you brought up a good point, too. You mentioned that you originally, you were going the career path, and then the cash flow was supplementing on the side. Um, but you got yourself in a position where you could make that transition. And that's, that's like a point of freedom where you can go, all right, like I no longer have to do the day job. If I choose to, perfect, that's fine. And I can have the additional investment income, um, but I can also go into this full time too. And that's a really uh, liberating position to be in. That, that's awesome. Yeah. And I mean, like, I mean, I'm going to go back to something I said earlier and just say like, you know, telling you the cash flow changed my life. Forget about the fact that the cash flow comes in and changed my life and that I could get out of a job. But I remember when my son was in the hospital in 2000, and I think it was 11, um, either 10, no, sorry, it was 11, yeah. He's in the hospital in 2011, uh, sorry, beginning of 2012, and he had this major virus, you know, problem on a ventilator. He was in the ICU for a couple of weeks. He was in the, we were in the hospital for several months through several surgeries. Wow. Um, we were there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, literally, mm -hmm. um, and at least one of the two of us, my wife and I, and... I can't imagine what would have happened if I had a job that I had to leave for like three to four months, mm. right? I would have for sure run out of like uh, vacation time, mm -hmm. would have probably run out of some other time they would have sorted out, probably would have been on, you know, non-paid time leave off. And at some point, they can't keep the job for you if you can't do it, right? Like mm -hmm. you can't leave a company for a year and expect your position to be there. So the cash flow for me, like it's just amazing how much has changed my life in so many positive ways, that being one of them in terms of freedom. So that's a, that, that's that example awesome. comes to mind immediately with COVID and everything else going on. I know it was a kind of a little off topic, but it's just uh, something I thought I'd pass along. Yeah, that's awesome. The freedom to be able to handle unexpected things, you know, and if you had to deal with that and had to try and figure out the job piece, that would have been additional stress that you would have also been putting or bringing to the table for your family, which obviously wouldn't have been beneficial. Yep. That's, that's great. Um, so can you quickly explain the difference between active investing and passive investing? Yeah. So this is a little bit subjective, but what I tell people is when, as a passive investor, I trade control for diversification. Now I also get the benefit of leveraging someone else's time, uh, in some cases, money experience, um, credit, uh, and all kinds of other things. But essentially I look at it as I trade control for diversification. What I mean by that is that. Uh, instead of, let's say you want to go buy an apart building, you have to come up with X amount of down payment. Uh, that's a pretty big number normally, right? As a person. So what I could do instead is I can actually take that same amount of money and spread it across multiple apartment buildings that someone else is managing who's pooling a bunch of investors together where I could be a small piece of that big deal. But the trade-off is that I am a small piece of that big deal and therefore my voting percentage and percentage ownership is kind of small and not very significant. It's not going to really make much difference, right? And so I'm trading control for diversification. Um, that's the, the number one thing that I think of when you're passive versus active. It's, it's about control in exchange for that diversification. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I'm, an, I'm an active and passive investor. I'm active on the mobile home park side of things um, and a little bit with multifamily. Uh, and I've also got an automatic telemachine fund, investment fund as well. And then on the passive side, I also invest in a lot of other investments too. So I kind of take both roles. But on the active side, like you said before, it's a little bit limiting 
on scaling because you can only take on so much active investments. Um, obviously you can scale and build a bigger and bigger business, but then that takes on more and more responsibility. Whereas if you're completely on the passive side, really your responsibility is to just manage your money and to find the next investments. And so you're, you're, you're explaining um, that you are giving away control to have diversification by getting to be involved in, in say 20, uh, passive investments as opposed to one active investment, which is great. But you, how do you get over that hurdle of giving away control? Obviously, you've got to feel really comfortable with who you're investing in because you want to make sure that them being in control, they're going to make decisions that you would make or, or something along those lines. So how do you get over this? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I, I brainstorm this with new investors all the time who kind of just contact me and are trying to figure out whether it should be active or passive. I just spoke to somebody yesterday about this, literally. And you know, part of it is personality fit. Part of it, you know, some people don't like the idea of gimmick control. They may be a business owner. They may have had control of what they do for many years and they're just not comfortable with it, right? Um, other people like me, I was in the corporate world. I did not have time to be active. My job was very, very busy. So it wasn't really a feasible option from my perspective. So I started down passive really for that reason. And then I ended up very comfortable with it. Um, and I just kept going. And there are plenty, there are a lot of people who are actually well suited for it because they just don't want to put the time in that's required for active learning, et cetera. And they like the idea of being able to just have someone else run something. Um, but again, it's a very big personality question. And it's a very important question to ask if you're kind of new to investing and you're not sure the stuff that Bryce and I typically invest in real estate, some other things, it's very illiquid, right? It's not like the stock market. You can't go press sell on your computer screen and get your cash in a couple of days. And so what I like to tell people is take a lot of time to think about which path you want to go down, because regardless of which one you choose, if you go down the path slightly, you know, on the active side, one or two deals on the passive side, two, three, four deals, and you wake up one morning and say, this is the wrong fit for me. I got to do the other side. Now you've got two problems. One is you have something that's very hard to exit. And in case of being passive, actually the SEC, I think it's illegal for you to, to sell your shares within the first year. It's actually like anti-flipping share laws. After that, you have to find your own buyer. It might be the wrong time. And there could be in the middle of COVID a recession where you can't mm -hmm. find a buyer. You may not get the price you even initially paid for because nobody knows what the building's worth because you're not going to go pay for an appraisal. So getting out of these things on the passive side is hard. And even on the active side, even though you have more control, you may have a loan that may come due for many years that you can't really get out of depending on how it's structured. Um, it may be the wrong time to sell. It could even be just the wrong seasonality of time to sell. So there's a lot of factors that go into the fact that when these are illiquid, it's very hard to reverse the path. And what's the worst piece about that, especially on the passive side, is that if you go into two, three, four deals and decide it's the wrong thing for you, well, now you've actually got even more risk than you would have had. Um, because what I tell people is if you're going to trade control for diversification, you better make sure you get diversified. Because when you get, once you give up control mm -hmm. to somebody, you've got additional risks. So you can never get rid of these, what I call a lot of 1% risks, right? There's a ton of them. The easy ones are fraud, mismanagement, Ponzi scheme, and I can keep going on. A lot of unpredictable things, right? Mm. And so because you can never truly get rid of that because everyone, anyone could be kosher at the beginning and then change and you're giving someone control, you've got to diversify out of that risk. But mm. if you only go down two, three, four deals and then decide it's the wrong thing for yourself, now you've got even more risk than you would have had not going down the path at all, theoretically, and just going on the active side to an extent, right? And it's the same thing with the active side too and then reversing course. So it's a very important um, topic to take seriously and think about and make sure that it really matches your personality, make sure that you really are okay going down the path, you know, as fully as possible 
to minimize the risk you're going to take down the path you've chosen. There's a lot to consider before you just kind of dabble in. Yeah. And, and, you know, I've actually really felt the diversification piece through the whole COVID and everything like that, because some of my investments have gone up. Some of them have stayed just the same and some went yes. down and it was just like, wow, it made, it made me want to even diversify even more. Um, yes. And it's just like, I could tell you it's totally luck of the draw. Like I'll give you a great example. I also have some ATM investments, right? And I have two different operators I've invested with one of which we both invested in the same operator together. Well, the one that we both invested in who's the fifth largest in the U S they happen to have been in a lot of essential businesses that were able to remain open and the cash flows mm -hmm. continued, right? On the other hand, my smaller mom and pop operator who kind of targets much smaller businesses and just isn't as big like non-institutional, yeah, he's probably experienced about 30 to 40% store closures. And my, my income is down, depending on the month, 40 to 60% with him as he's struggling, trudging along through this, right? So my cash flow is reduced by let's say half. So mm -hmm. even within the same category, it was almost just like some luck. So it's, it's a luck across the board in many ways, but the diversification, as you're mentioning, can really help through that. Um, so very, very important. Yeah. And, and I want to talk about like different types of investments that you think are, are good. Uh, and I want to talk about that in just a second here. But before we do that, there's uh, when we're talking about passive investors, there's essentially two types of passive investors. There's someone who's considered to be accredited. And then there's someone who's considered to be non-accredited. Do you want to just sort of touch on that real quickly and sure. uh, let us know the explanation of those and then what kind of investments each of those can invest in? Sure. Yeah. So this is an SEC definition. Accredited almost sounds like you're part of a club or something, but it's not like that at all. It's just an SEC definition of whether or not you qualify per either like an income rule or per a net worth rule, right? So the income rule is that if you're if you file your taxes single, you have to have made at least two hundred thousand in the past two years and expect to make 200,000 or more this year. If you're filing joint, um, then you have to have made 300,000 joint for the last two years or expect to make 300,000 this year. That's the income side, okay? That's how you qualify. So that's, so that's 200,000 each year for the last two years and 300,000 each year for the last two years. Yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah. So, right, depending on whether you're single or joint. Now, that's the income side. If you don't qualify on the income side, you could still qualify on the net worth side. The net worth is essentially if you have a million dollars or more net worth, excluding the value of your primary residence. Um, so it could be one or the other. It doesn't have to be both. So if you qualify for one or the other, you're considered accredited. And what happens is that when you're an accredited investor, it opens up the world to, okay, 100, I'm going to call it 100% investments. It's actually a, quali a qualified purchaser and another kind of mid-range one that is even higher. But well, let's not worry about those. That's like less than 1% of deals. So if you're probably open to 100% of potential passive opportunities. If you're not accredited, you don't meet either of those tests, then you're going to have a reduced um, kind of basket of opportunities you can look at. And the accredited investors just consider 100% of the pie. What goes away with the non-accredited piece are opportunities that are allowed to be market, publicly marketed to um, accredited investors only. They're called 506C like Charlie. Mm -hmm. um, what also goes away is any 506B opportunities that um, are where the operator chooses to take accredited investors only because it's their choice, mm -hmm. right? So that goes away when it's only accredited investors per their choice. Um, and also on the crowdfunding sites, uh, sites like Realty Mogul, many other sites in the U.S., uh, the majority of the opportunities they offer typically are for accredited investors only. But the good news is that mo a lot of those crowdfunding sites like Realty Mogul have options for non-accredited investors only that fall under the crowdfunding laws that were, I think, passed in 2012. So, um, so there's a smaller kind of pie that's available for non-accredited investors and there are accredited investors, but both do have access to these types of opportunities. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
And, and that's actually a good thing for a lot of you that are chasing the goal of financial freedom. Maybe a financial goal is to become an accredited investor over time, because that's, that's certainly a goal that I had when I was starting out on the financial piece. And uh, once you become an accredited investor, it's a game changer. It now opens up different investments you can be involved in. But if you are a non-accredited investor, you can still get started. And um, there's still plenty of deals out there. Yeah, I want to say one more really important thing. So, you know, I talk to people sometimes who are new and may say, look, I've got $10,000 to invest or $20,000 to invest, right? And the challenge with the accredited opportunities, often the most common minimum investment number I see is 50,000 just for one opportunity. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's 100. When you're lucky, it's 25, okay? So if you're not accredited, but you only have say 10, 20, $30,000 to invest, the cool thing about that is that a lot of these crowdfunding websites that are out there as an example for for, that that take non-accredited, there'll be a much lower minimum. I mean, certainly 5,000 in some cases lower. So you can still get diversified potentially, which is really important, even if you have a small amount of money, if you find the non-accredited opportunities. Now, sometimes some of the opportunities from some of these operators that are not accredited still have high minimums like 50,000. So don't get discouraged if you see those and you have a smaller amount to invest, but please be sure. And again, I'm not a financial advisor, but I am a huge proponent of diversification and there's not a better time, like you mentioned, Bryce, than now during a recession to show how important that is, right? So don't put all your eggs in one basket. I've been just trying to explain this to my kids as well. It's just so important. So um, you can still accomplish that if you're non-accredited, but you just gotta look and try and find the right places to do that. So if we've got a first time investor, they're not accredited and they've got $50,000 and they wanna invest it, um, an option is that we could actually diversify that 50,000 and, and put it in some lower amount investments, like maybe 5,000 here, 10,000 there. And, um, you're talking about sort of like regulation a plus, um, investments. Yes. Yes. Well, regulation a plus is the most common. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing I'm going to say is that if you, you're out there and you're not accredited and you have $50,000, like Bryce's scenario, and you're tempted to put it into one opportunity where the minimum is 50,000, I would strongly discourage you from one investor to another, just as a suggestion, because again, it's the concept of all eggs in one basket. And, you know, I'm not going to, uh, don't know what should take this the wrong way, but like if you invested with Madoff, who was a huge Ponzi scheme and you put all your eggs in one basket, you've got zero, right? If you invested with Madoff and you'd only put 10 or 20% of your money with them, it really hurts but you have 80 or 90% of your money left. So, mm-hmm. you know, any, I can give you 20 day, ways a deal can go bad, right? You invest in a real estate opportunity. Um, there's a fire, the whole building burns down. Insurance decides not to pay. Then you have to come up with legal money to go fight them for years. And what happens if you don't win, right? So there's like, I can give you, I can, there's all 1% risks, I call them. But the point is don't put all your eggs in one basket because you just never know for sure. Yeah. And being an an investor who's invested in over like 70 different uh, business opportunities and probably like plenty more over the years. Yeah. I'm sure you've seen some that haven't worked out as well as planned and some that worked out even better as planned. And you can never like figure out exactly what the future is going to be for each investment. You can just figure out what the best case and probable case and worst case scenarios are. Yep. That's right. Yeah. So, and then just one more thing that I wanted to touch on with um, accredited investing, and that is that some investments uh, you can sort of basically essentially self-certify to be accredited. And then some other investments that Jeremy mentioned before, one is called 506C, you you actually have to get a third party to verify for you, like a legal advisor, CPA, financial advisor, something like that. 
Um, yeah, those people have to sign off. You can also use a third-party service that mm -hmm. actually there's services that will actually, you typically do submitting your tax returns to prove up your income, where mm -hmm. you can show, for example, if you had a stock account that had a million and a half dollars in it, that would qualify you for the net worth test of a million dollars. You can then show them that statement and then they would sign off on it. But you're right, Bryce, the ones that are allowed to publicly market are typically the ones that require the third-party verification. And that's the SEC requirement in exchange for someone to be allowed to publicly market it. They then have to go verify by a third party that you fall under accredited so that they, there is proof that they actually targeted the right type of investor. It wasn't taking advantage of people who couldn't afford to be in that type of opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for adding that. And uh, I really want to talk about the state of economy, but not just yet. Um, I want to just quickly hear, what have you been investing in over the last couple of years? And why have you been choosing those types of investments? Yeah. So um, first thing I'll say, if anybody doesn't know me out there, I am highly conservative, more conservative than most. So, um, you know, when I invest, I try to take a very high level approach of where, we, where are we in the cycle? And because I get, I'm in a very illiquid investments for the most part, they may have a very long-term horizon. A lot of what I invest in has a 10-year horizon. I've got to think way ahead to kind of avoid the landmines of recessions and other potential, you know, challenges. So for me, I thought that everything was just too expensive across all the asset classes by the end of 2016. So psychologically, I've been on the sidelines since the end of 2016. I've been pushing some of my operators to sell. I was in over 30 exits in 17, 18, 19. Mm -hmm. And I have basically made what I will call only no brainer investments since then. And I can give you some examples for sure. But um, so philosophically, I was on the sidelines. That's where my headspace was. And it was only going to be if something's a no brainer and I have to do it, that I actually do it between those times, because I was worried that we were at the end of a, uh, of a economic cycle, just looking at how long cycles last. And I was worried that if I went in at the wrong time, I'd be going in at the wrong price. And that could be a challenge for someone like me. Now, keep in mind, I invest in kind of low risk, highly occupied, may or may not have any value add upside opportunities. So when I, the most important thing that I have to look at is price, because I'm not going into like a new development deal where we're building all this value up, this building from scratch. And then, you know, we're more concerned about how much value we're going to add versus the potential price of the land you can make up for it, right? I just, there's not much padding in the deals that I go into. So one of the ways you can achieve that padding is buying it at the right price at the right time. Mm -hmm. So I have to be very careful. So again, philosophically, I was in that mind space. Um, I'm going to, let's see, so some examples of stuff I've invested in. So um, these are completely random, just coming to mind. So um, I invested last December. I completely anticipated a recession coming up in the next couple of years from then based on the, mm -hmm. the inverted yield curve. But I invested in a no debt RV park um, that was built within the last year in December of 2019 at an 18 cap rate. That was like a no brainer because it was an 18 cap, 100% occupied, brand new built in the last year, brand new infrastructure, everything else. And I said, you know what? We're going to get a reduced occupancy. Our break even is 20% occupancy based on the costs. Okay. So, so if my cash flow goes down from, you know, the 18 cap or whatever it's going to be to like a five during a recession, and then it goes back up to like, very high levels after I was willing to take the average of the cash flows over time. That's how I justified it based off the discount we were getting the price we were paying. So that to me was a no brainer. And so you, you, you essentially at an 18 cap, that would have been about half or a third of what it was actually probably worth as far as market value. Yeah, It's in a tertiary market, which I don't normally do. So I made an exception because I thought the risk was very low because we didn't have debt. Um, and it was also very hard to find very high yielding opportunities at the time, right at the end of the cycle. Mm -hmm. So I made an exception there too. If I had to guess, it was probably 
probably should have been a 12 to 14 cap and we paid an 18 cap. Okay. Yeah, so we got a discount probably 30%. Regardless, the point is the all cash piece was critical because that's what allowed me to get yeah. comfortable enough going into it, knowing that we were going to have reduced occupancy mo most likely in a recession, but I was completely okay with that and I'd probably still get some cash flow. Mm -hmm. so, so that's yeah. one example. Again, unique, yeah. no-brainer, had to do it, right? I really like the team as well. Um, I invested in a two-park mobile home park portfolio in um, Alabama in 2017. I wouldn't normally invest in that asset class in Alabama to begin with for various reasons, but it was in the right location. It was in a good job market, and it was a really good operator. Um, as it turned out, we actually bought that park um, for roughly $6.8 million, I think, in 2017. We sold it for about $10 million in 2019, hit like a 40, 50 IRR for investors or whatever it was. It was actually meant to be held long term and i went into that one because we we did get a really good deal on that one we were probably 10 to 20 percent below market at the time made it really attractive no brainer as far as the operator it was over 90 percent occupied there was still room to actually grow it was a waiting list and the person who owned it didn't have the money to fill it so we had a really good opportunity there to add some value it actually cash flowed at over 12 percent net to investors the first quarter out the gate that's okay? awesome just to give you an idea so yeah. And, you know, pretty low. It was very safe leverage and everything, long-term leverage. So the whole thing added up really well. And again, just kind of had to do it, even though I wasn't looking for it. That's another example. Um, and to, I keep going to, on, but, you know. No, no, this is great. And I want you to keep going on. I just want to add a little bit of something to that. You were saying that first quarter, 12% cash flow. Um, and most investors in this kind of asset class, mobile home parks and multifamily, they're looking at somewhere around about, they want about 7 or 8%. Uh, cash flow to make themselves yeah. feel comfortable. So that's that's significantly above what people are expecting right now. Right, which is why I was totally comfortable with it at the time. And to, to clarify for anybody out there, I did get 12% in that quarter. It was annualized, right? Mm -hmm. So it was 12% divided by four is the first paycheck I got. But that was the annualized yeah. figure that it was actually profit. We were, that's, that was the profitability of it right out the gate. Um, let's see. Another one I invested in, which we talked about, was this ATM fund. I've been investing in ATM since 2008. Came across a new operator. And I had been through the previous recession. So I started in January of 2008 with my previous operator. I watched what happened with my ATM during that downturn. It was a pretty severe downturn. And um, we managed to get through quite well. Income was down maybe 10 to 15%. It really was not a big hit. Um, there's a lot of profitability in that business model that I'm very, very familiar with. It's been 12 years and I understand the industry really well. And so found this new operator, fifth largest in the US got did a ton of due diligence, got very comfortable with them. And I've been looking for a second operator to diversify into for a while. And I wasn't worried about the downturn because I understood the padding. I understood there was still a tremendous amount of padding based on my calculations. And I knew that a recession, a normal recession without a pandemic um, mm -hmm. wouldn't cause a challenge, right? So at least it shouldn't disrupt the cash flow very much. It didn't disrupt it at all for me with the other operator, the way it was structured. So went into that deal um, I, two tranches. I think I did one once in 2019 and once in early 2020 without really being concerned about a recession, right? Which was really key at the time. That's where we were in the cycle. So that's another unusual run. run. And also what made it unusual is that it was able to invest with the fifth largest operator in the US, which is obviously very difficult to find. So yeah. Yeah, again, not looking for anything, but came across returns were pretty, pretty strong. Um, you know, it's, about, it's projected about 24.5% annualized roughly. And uh, I think it, that's the number. And um, yeah, just getting monthly checks and it's still going well through COVID. So that's, um, that's really awesome. Yeah. So those are some examples, you know, so again, I did much lower volume than I would normally do during those years, but was still 
on the sidelines. And yet at the same time, when you find a no brainer, you've got to do it. And you still have to continue to try to find no brainers. There's not, there's, even today during COVID right now, which I'm sure we're going to get into. Normally I would tell you like, am I going to invest in anything this month? Probably not. But if I find a no brainer, I'm going to go into it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no reason not to. And they come up throughout at any timing they can come up, but you've got to do networking and work to find. So what I'm hearing from you is that not always do we want to go out there and just like pick up every investment. There's going to be times where the investments are going to be good investments are going to be everywhere and we probably can't snatch them up quick enough. And then there's going to be times where it's sort of going to be average. And then there's going to be other times, which probably the last couple of years for you, where it's been much smarter to say no to a lot of investments and just kind of sit on the sideline and and be very cautious of, of what's going on. Yeah. And I want to just, just to like kind of paint a picture so the way that I operated in the last cycle, and I, I'm just generalizing, each asset class was different because I invest across a lot of asset classes, but 2009 to the end of 2012 was the all, like all engines go, right? All cylinders firing, almost everything makes sense at this part of the cycle, at these prices that have already adjusted, right? Yeah. Once they adjusted. 2013 to 16 to me was try to be picky and get the right deal maybe get a slight discount, but a lot of stuff still makes sense, but do be careful because stuff starting is pricier than it was a few years mm-hmm. ago. Right. Mm-hmm. 2017 to 2020 was, you know, stop only do stuff that makes sense. Try to get some stuff sold because the cycle is going to end and this is cyclical. And now that we're talking about this in June of 2020, you know, we're, we're in a recession. Things are adjusting, but always slowly. That's the way they adjust in real estate. And eventually we're going to get back to all engines go, all cylinders firing very soon. I've been waiting very patiently for this for a few years. I, you know, I'm excited about the potential prospects, hopefully for next year. Say. Okay, awesome. And I, and I want to dig into that. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of people out there, they don't really know what's going on. If we looked at the economy today, um, and, and we're talking as of June 2020, um, if we look at the economy and the stock market today, even with all the COVID stuff, even with the riots and everything that's been going on, it looks like things are trending upwards. And um, if we didn't really know what was going on, it looks like things are, are going pretty well. But you and I both know that there's some foundational problems within uh, the economy, and it's sort of on a global scale, and certainly a lot of, of uh, things here in the, in the US. Um, what are we actually looking at? What's really going on behind the scenes? Because you and I knew something was going to happen. We didn't, I, I could have never predicted it was going to be a pandemic, but a right. pandemic or, or a virus could have been one of, you know, 20 or 30 things that could have triggered some of the things that happened. Um, so do you want to just tell us a, a little bit of the state of the economy? Like what's really happening behind the scenes? What should we be concerned about? And what are some of the main things to take into consideration? Yeah, we have a really unique set of circumstances in many ways. And it's not just what's obvious, right? So what's obvious is that we're in a pandemic. And that is very unusual on its own, right? And that's hard to decipher. But what I would tell people, you know, I spent a lot of time between the end of January and end of February trying to figure out how is COVID going to impact the US and what does this mean? And it was agonizing. I spent literally two hours a day doing research. And um, what I realized is that at the end, I said, you know what, I'm literally focused on the wrong thing. It's going to be a recession. And that's what we're dealing with. So to simplify it, we're in a recession. That's not an opinion. That's already been official, right? And what happens during recession, you've got to take a look at what happens during recession and how to handle yourself based on previous recessions. Now, what's unique about this recession is the amount of stimulus that's already been thrown at things as quickly as it has that have actually, in my opinion, distorted the reality. Mm-hmm. And that's where you have to be really careful as an investor. 
right? So I read an article just this morning that I got from someone who invests in multifamily that showed if you compare this June to a year ago June, okay, when we were like at the peak of the economy, mm -hmm. um, the, the there are more people making their on-time payments in apartments than there were last year. Now, let's stop there for a second. Because the first thing I said to myself is, well, that's, that's logical. You have, you know, 23% U6 unemployment. You have literally two times the amount of people that have lost their jobs in the last three, four months than were entirely created in the entire last run-up for 10 years. And yet, more people are making their on-time payment in apartments than they were before. What gives? Because there's something very wrong, right? Mm -hmm. What gives is that you have the stimulus that has been given to people. In many cases, they're making more money staying home and not working than they would be if they were working, and that allows them to make these payments. And we're probably gonna see another round of stimulus at the end of July based on some stuff we've been reading. And frankly, I expect that to be the case going into the elections. You know, I'm expecting that they're gonna kick the can down the road and continue to have stimulus into the elections. Not, not in every manner, and we can get into the specifics, but I think for individuals, you know, who you may have in apartments for, and I'm using apartments so a lot of people understand them. I, I don't mean to pick on apartments, just easy for everybody to understand. Mm -hmm. um, and the reality is that we're not seeing reality yet. The reality has been distorted and it's been delayed. Okay. What's eventually going to happen is that stimulus will stop at some point, right? We all agree that there won't be stimulus continuing in five years from now. We just don't know when it's going to stop. It could be this year. It could be the beginning of next year, whenever it's going to be. When that happens, you know, we're still going to have a lot of unemployment. Then some people won't be able to afford to pay the rent. And then what happens from there, it's a domino effect. People can't afford to pay the rent. They may have to go and move back home. They may need to double up with somebody else. Vacancies go up, right? Once vacancies go up, what happens? Well, uh, the owners have to either have promotional, you know, uh, mechanisms or marketing or discounted rents to get people in because there's more supply than demand at that point. Once um, the market rents come down, we start to begin to understand better the effect of the recession on income on some of these properties. And it's not just multifamily, I'm just using it's easy. This is across the board, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone's gonna be affected differently, but that's the easy one to explain. And then from there, you're going to have probably less investors who are basically able to go and invest. They're going to either be scared. Some of them will have lost their jobs and because the stimulus is gone. And, you know, some, the PPP paychecks that were given to businesses don't appear to be renewed. And they're going to, they were designed to run out at the end of July to be able to afford to pay paychecks, just so everybody knows. So mm -hmm. at the beginning of August, that's going to start to cause a lot of pain. And probably in the third and fourth quarter, and this already started, but in the third or fourth quarter, in 2020, there's going to be a lot of small business closing and bankruptcies, unfortunately, that we haven't discovered yet. So the discovery of what's going to happen with businesses, the discovery of who can really make rent payments, the discovery of actual market rents and vacancies, and then the discovery of what are these properties really worth and what multiples are people willing to pay with changes during recession has all been delayed. That's what the reality of what we're dealing with. The temporary reality is that more people are making their apartment rent payment this month than they did a year ago. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the picture of what we're actually facing. And it's very hard to kind of understand that because right now everything looks great, right? But there will be a time at which the stimulus for the businesses go away and then the stimulus for individuals go away. The jobs aren't going to come back nearly quick enough and we're going to have a proper recession that we're actually going to feel and understand better. But that could take some time. That can go into 2021, for example, you know, past the elections. So does that all make sense? 
Yeah, that totally makes sense. And, um, you know, another part of kind of the stimulus of what's happening right now is the Federal Reserve is printing unlimited amounts of money, which has never been done before. It's just astronomical. And it can sort of make things look like we're temporarily solving a problem. The more money there is in circulation, um, the less purchasing power it has. And uh, all sorts of things could happen as a result of that. So I can't, you know, I've heard a lot of investors out there giving advice saying, well, it doesn't matter. The Federal Reserve is printing money, so they'll save the day. What, what's your two cents on that? Yeah. And I just want to add one more thing to what I said before, and I'll get into that, which is just to be clear. So to kind of add a conclusion to what I said before, as an investor, what's important to consider is if you're going to invest in something today, just make sure it's either a really good price or you have a lot of confidence that it's not going to be greatly affected by the lack of stimulus, et cetera, because if you're not adjusting for that, you may be putting yourself at risk versus waiting. Because my, my approach is essentially to wait for the do typical recession dominoes to fall, let some of the pricing adjust as a result of discovering all these things, and then jump in once that pricing has adjusted and been discovered. So to me, it's just a question of patience, but you know, we'll see. And what are um, some of those indicators for you? Um, it, it's well, it's going to be, to me, in the end of the day, it's going to be market prices, market rents coming down and prices coming down for the assets. Because mm -hmm. the, the ultimate indicator at the end is you're paying a lower multiple for this asset because of consumer sentiment. But what's really important to note is that if you're paying, um, let's say you're buying a building today and you're, you're getting 10 or 20% off or 15% off or whatever the number is you might be able to negotiate today, that helps, that creates good padding, that, that's important. But what it doesn't do is account for the potential for reduced net, or operating, operating, net operating income or profit next year because you haven't experienced the increase in vacancy and the reduction in rents yet, right? And then the question is, was that padding enough and did it really help you enough or not? So, you know, um, again, that's why if that padding is huge, it could definitely take care of that, right? If somebody sells, if somebody approaches me tomorrow with an apartment building that's 50% off, just to be use an extreme example, I'll do it, right? Because I'm not worried that the apartment is probably going to be worth 50% less than a year. Even with vacancies and market rents and everything else. But, you know, if you get a smaller uh, 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 discount, you've got to be a little bit more cautious. So just, just to give you some insight. With regards to the Fed, I read an article yesterday that was projecting, and I think it was one of the investment banks, that like the Fed's going to end up printing about $10 trillion uh, between now and the end of 2021. It's a projection. Who knows? Um, huge number. All right. Huge number. Um, and look, the reality is, is that if things weren't horrendously bad, they wouldn't be doing this, right? But they don't want to point that out to anybody so that people aren't scared. Um, but that's what's going on in the background. You've got almost one in four people unemployed. If you count people who haven't looked for more than a month, in more than a month, you've, that's the real unemployment rate. So that's just tremendous, right? Um, and they're doing whatever they can to try to kick the can down the road. What repercussions it'll have down the road, harder to say. I like to point to Japan what may happen um, and we can get into that if you want but that's my personal belief of the path we're going to go down but the reality is, is that i expect a lot more money printing to happen before this is all said and done for sure and something a lot of people may not understand about the printing of money it's also called quantitative easing or qe is that when the federal reserves prints money there's nothing essentially 
backing it. It's they're, they're printing money out of thin air and then they're creating debt. So when money is being printed, debt's being created. So more debt will be coming into the system. And um, it, it's, it might temporarily solve problems, but you were, you were mentioning Japan. So like what, what happened in Japan and how could America look like Japan? Yeah, so what's happened in Japan is that their debt to GDP ratio has just gotten off the charts, literally compared to anybody else. I haven't looked at the latest data, but it's certainly over 250%. It's probably much higher because I haven't looked at it in a while. And I believe if I'm correct, that 40 to 50% of their entire budget goes towards paying the interest on the debt, okay? Uh, I hope they have that figure right. I could be wrong because I haven't looked it up in a while. But what ends up happening is that as a result of that last piece of information I just gave to you, their long-run potential GDP growth is basically at about zero to one percent. And in a given year, Japan could be just below zero, just above zero. It's just kind of always teetering because the overhang from the interest and the debt associated with it is so great in terms of what is required to pay back that it can't keep its uh, economy growing very quickly. And so if you look at what's happened in the US, we're already started down this path, right? So before 2008, the long run potential of the GDP annualized is was probably three to 5%, you know, reasonably, and some would say maybe four to 5%. What happened between 2009 and, and this past downturn was that we ended up in the two to 3% range, um, just as the realistic potential of the economy uh, because of the fact that we had printed uh, so much money in the last downturn. And this is going to far exceed that, right, And when we're all said and done. And so what's probably going to happen now in terms of how this all works is that once we finish printing all this money, we get into the next upturn, um, the long-run potential of our economy is going to take another step down because of the additional debt overhang. And so my opinion is that we're probably going to end up in one to two. In fact, to be totally honest with you, I had this conversation with someone last week. I really hope we end up in one to two because if we end up in zero to one like Japan, they're in a recession like X amount of the time. In a normal recovery, they're never really in a full proper recovery. They're just teetering on a recession all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's not a good way to be working. And that's not good for investors at all in terms of predictability. So if you want another cycle and be able to understand how a cycle works and just predict that you'll have a certain amount of runway in a cycle, hopefully we'll be in the one to 2% range, which is not good growth, but it's growth. Because if we end up in zero to one as an investor, that means you can end up in an unexpected recession in two years from now, right? That's what's happening in, in Japan. And then they're printing more money to try to get out of it. And then that's causing a problem. So I, I'm hoping as an investor, I have one more cycle where it's a normal cycle, right? And then after that, then it becomes much more difficult to invest because you cannot rely on a predictable uptrend cycle that probably won't have a recession uh, in the middle of it, right? That you can then apply some of the rules to like how long a runway, you know, that's the runway. You know, imagine like the next recession after or the next uh, upturn after someone says to you like, I don't know how long the runway is anymore. You know, it could be two years. It could be five years. What are you going to do? You're going to go buy an apartment building with a five-year loan if it could be two years. You're going to go invest in a 10-year loan in an apartment building when it could be two years or four years or six years. It's just not as predictable. It's much harder to invest if you want to try to be low risk at that point. So I'm just hoping we have one more normal cycle. And, and that's a real, uh, real thing to take into consideration, whether you're a passive investor or an active investor, and you're thinking about your exit strategy, you're like, all right, I've got a five to seven year business model on this investment. You've got to be able to like look in the future and go, well, where are loans going to be in five years? Am I going to be able to refinance? Am I going to be able to sell? Where are cap rates going to be? 
um, and take all these things into consideration because you may have an awesome game plan, but if you haven't accurately anticipated uh, a ballpark range of what could happen during that time and you're off, you can just lose all of your hard work and, and you're back to zero. Yeah, one, one good benefit of the fact they've been printing more money over the past few decades is that you basically, um, you have a longer uptrend typically. If you look at the length of our recoveries compared to historical, the average length, they become longer. And that's very helpful as an investor because it gives us more runway. That's literally what it is before you're done. And so more run, runway gives you a lot more possibilities to invest. It gives you more time to correct a problem you may have before you sell it, right? So that runway is very important. So that, that is one benefit and that most likely this recovery, which will probably start slow, not grow as quickly as you'd like, and then be slower growth than you like, will potentially last longer. So that is a good thing for investors, but hopefully it'll be you know, one to 2% GDP range. So it is a regular recovery and a regular cycle. Mm -hmm. And you know, some people have been saying, been saying the D word, they've been saying depression. Do you think that that's a possibility? Um, you know, I guess it depends on how you find, define a depression. I'm not quite sure what the, the, if there's an official definition. To me, this is a bad recession. Uh, it's going to take longer to discover what, you know, how things are going to unfold for investors. And I think that it's going to take many years for jobs to come back, which is going to mean that we're also going to have, that's also another challenge in terms of hindering our GDP growth, right? And so, um, you know, it's funny. I don't think I've heard anybody mention this, but this is like a square root situation, right? So if you think about what a square root looks like and forget the first part of it, you got the straight down, you've got like an up and then you've got like a sideways, like very slow up. That's the yeah. jobs path that I think will happen. And, um, uh, God, what's his name? Um, someone did a great video on YouTube about it. Um, big apartment investor, part of the real estate radio guys, I think. Um, okay. I'm forgetting his name. Anyway, it comes back to me. He just broke it down. What he did was he analyzed how many jobs did we add in our economy during this very strong recovery in the last cycle per year. And then he took the amount of jobs we've already lost and said, what if we grow back at the same rate? Because that's pretty reasonable because it was strong growth. It took him about 10 years to get every job back that we've just lost. Just to get, uh, 10 years to make it clear to everybody. This V-shaped recovery is like ludicrous and probably impossible to execute on you know you can't say that you're going to have jobs growth that is like 10 times better than it was in the best of years in the past 10 years where we had all this quantitative eating driving it and fueling it that was much uh, much more than usual and then say oh we're just going to get all the jobs back in a year or two like it doesn't the math doesn't add up it's not realistic so we're probably going to be on a seven to ten year recovery path before we add these jobs back and by the way don't forget populations increase over time. So that, that's not good because that's actually not keeping in pace with the population growth. Some of this stuff is why this GDP is going to be stagnating on top of the actual debt load. So the next recovery probably won't be pretty. It'll probably be there and they're probably going to fuel it as much as possible to just keep it going. Okay. And so how long do you think that we can be in the situation we are now until the next sort of crash happens or the, or the next sort of downturn happens? Well, you know, great question. If you look at the last recovery we just had, I think the, the longest recovery ever on record was I think 120 months up until this past recovery. I forget exactly how many months this one turned out to be, but I believe it was 130 something and I could be wrong about that. So I would say that um, 
based on the fact that the most recent recoveries have been longer, I'm thinking that we're probably going to have a seven to 11 year recovery. This is based on historical. If we end up creating another record, it'll probably be longer than 11 years. But I, I think there's a high probability it's going to go on for a while, especially with the amount of printing they're going to do to try to fuel it, right? And the fact that it's going to start slowly, so it's going to take longer to get back to where we were. So I think that's a pretty high probability, but of course it's impossible to predict. So hopefully we'll have seven to 10 years again to take a look at another recovery, maybe a little bit longer. Okay. And to, to put this in perspective for people and, and to go to the dark place first, and then we're going to go to, to a good place, but to go to the dark place first, like what's some kind of experiences that people could be happening at the worst parts of the bottom of this recession? You know, what would it look like for people? Um, are you talking about people who are unemployed or talking about investors? I'm talking about just generally, generally people. I mean, you know, we can expect like a lot of unemployment. Um, yeah, I mean, if you look at LA, you know, we, we've had, I live in LA here and our homeless situation has gotten worse and worse. And it's amazing how bad it's gotten considering it happened during some very prosperous times during a you know, very strong recovery. That's probably going to get much worse, unfortunately. I just don't see it getting better. Um, I think there's going to be a lot more of that. Um, uh, I, you know, that's the immediate thing that comes to mind. I mean, obviously you have unemployment that causes all kinds of challenges. Um, if people are probably going to have to end up getting used to a different standard of living in many cases, I see people taking multiple jobs and, you know, there's probably going to be some, some pressure for wages to not really go much higher and in some cases get reduced. And in fact, I think we saw wages drop during the beginning of COVID, which is highly unusual. And I think, unfortunately, the supply of people is so big. If you take the real number, the U6 number, one in four people in the U.S. Um, is looking for work. That is a lot of supply. And that, what that means is that wages are going to be capped in terms of growth for quite a while, probably, just in terms of supply and demand. So I think the standard of living, unfortunately, some people are going to take a leg down because they're going to have to take a step down in their, in their wages. And they may, won't be making as much as they used to. And, um, you know, it's not a pretty picture. I, I got to tell you, I mean, no recession is a pretty picture. This one is particularly bad. Um, so, you know, from an investor perspective, um, all this is going to factor in, right? And you've got to think a few steps ahead in terms of exactly what you're investing in as to whether that makes sense, both when you invested and then going forward, forward five, 10 years from now, will that still be demand or not? Um, you know, things potentially could shift in terms of, uh, the just the, I, I think, Unfortunately, all this is lining up to say that the middle class and the lower income people are going to get hit. Of course, everyone's going to get hit, but you know, those people typically get hit badly. And unfortunately, I don't see much difference again this time. Mm -hmm. Sure. And, you know, we have been talking a little bit about doom and gloom for the last couple of minutes. And obviously, none of us want that to happen, um, but we can't control that. Um, and given that things like this happen, the, the good place that us investors can be, whether we're active or passive, is that we can provide some solutions to problems. Um, and that can also be very profitable as well, but it can also help a lot of people too. So, you know, I want people to understand out there, if, you, if you're not actively involved in investments and um, you're looking to get into it, it's not an opportunity where you're by any means preying on the weak. It's actually a, a problem solving solution that you can come from, a perspective that you can come from. So, um, Jeremy, what kind of investments do you think, uh, what kind of investments do you have your eye on for now and um, over the next few years? Sure. So this year, I'm definitely on hold waiting for discovery of everything we discussed before. 
my four favorite assets, so keep in mind, everyone, there's a thousand ways to invest. So this is the way I invest, but I invest for cash flow, relatively predictable cash flow, highly occupied type opportunities. So in real estate, my top four asset classes for the next 10 years, because I look for predictability, because I live off the cash flow, so I want predictable cash flow coming in, are uh, mobile home parks, apartments, self-storage, and senior living. All of them are different for different reasons. None of them potentially make sense to me at this very moment in June, you know, as far as like average market deal. Mm. But those four are my favorite four for predictable cash flow for the next 10 years. Then you look at stuff like office and retail, very easy for people to understand the predictability of the demand of office with telecommuting that was already starting as a trend before, but now it's been accelerated. That's very difficult to predict. And even more so, which offices in terms of which locations will be predicted, urban, suburban, et cetera, right? And then retail, that's kind of obvious, but you know, how much demand are we going to continue out for certain types of retail, both large enclosed malls, even retail strip malls with the advent of the internet. And now with that, that purchasing online, even accelerating further. And even the types of, for example, grocery stores, there was always the prediction that the footprint of a grocery store was going to shrink, right? If you take a look, um, there's so many strip centers in Texas, and I'm not just pointing a finger, just that I, I've invested in a lot of them in the past, where you got this like one to 200,000 square foot Kroger, okay? And it's an amazing store to go into. But the reality is that a lot of more shopping is going to shift online. They won't be able to afford to pay that footprint that store may turn into 25,000 to 50,000 square foot footprint at some point, right? Where a lot of the sales shift online. Um, another great example, I am convinced, and I've been talking about this for years. You got, you know, how many Domino's pizzas are near me? I don't know, but there's a lot. I'm in LA. There's these tiny little storefronts. Why is it that there isn't one center that can bake more pizzas and that's kind of a regional center, right? Cut out all those little stores and it could be franchise and everything else in structure but at some point probably all those people are going to go away it's going to be more centralized because most of it's going to be ordered and delivered as opposed to picked up right mm -hmm. that's the trend so there's a lot of things will change but what's and also we won't even get into self-driving cars how that can change the entire pattern of demand for where an office space is where a retail strip center is whether there'll be demand for products in person etc right uh flying drones all kinds of stuff and this sounds crazy but we're thinking 10 years ahead here right we're thinking 10 years ahead. So you've got to consider those things. So to me, retail office and some other stuff is harder to predict than is what I call tier B. If there was an absolute no-brainer, I would take a look at it. But my top tier of like what I'm really targeting are those four asset classes I mentioned for predictability. Okay. okay. And is there anything outside of real estate that you've got your eye on? Um, any other probably alternative investments or anything like yeah. that? Yeah. You know, um, I love ATMs. I've averaged 35% a year on my ATMs since 2008. So they've been huge successful for me, but the predictability of the ATMs 10 years down the road is tough. I'm very comfortable with four to seven year timeline, but after that, it could be tough. So that's going to be a little bit more challenging as far as, far as how is money going to be used. Um, you know, I, I typically don't invest in very much that isn't hard asset based. So it's harder for me to invest in an ATM type of business because I prefer to have that asset base just as a, another backup, just as far as my low risk scenario. Um, so, you know, there's not too much I've looked at, you know, I, I find oil and gas intriguing because prices are very low right now. And there's a lot of distress. So it's the right time to buy when people are scared. Um, but the lack of predictability behind pricing of oil makes it much more challenging. I do have some shallow well working well oil investments right now, and they're totally fine because they're shallow well. Um, but, and there's no debt associated with those projects but the cash flow is on hold at the moment and the predictability of where that's going to be is tough. So that's something I'm not probably going to look at as much, even though it's intriguing. 
Um, I invest in startups as well. That's a whole different discussion. It's a very, very small piece. It's when I have to make a bet on a person, I have about 10 startup investments. Um, so I'll always be looking for those, but that's not, I'm not looking for them. It's like when I know someone really well and I have to make a bet on them and I kind of like the idea well enough. So it comes up randomly. Um, but I don't have anything specific outside of real estate. Most of my focus is really real estate based. I will say this, two things. I, I tend to invest in more residential at the beginning of a cycle instead of the end of a cycle, just because of the cyclical nature of pricing. So um, I'll probably go back and do some hard, much more hard money. I, I did hard money all the way up to the end of last year. I have only one loan left, but I'll probably start to do some more as of a year or two from now and really take advantage of the early part of the cycle for that um, in terms of risk reward. And then I'll probably do some flips as well on the single family side uh, and maybe some other aspects of it. Uh, and then also even on the commercial real estate side on the rest of it, I invest in value out at the beginning of a cycle, but not at the end of a cycle. And I kept mm -hmm. telling people this for the past few years. I, I don't know if I've ever heard anyone else say that, but for me, it's about runway, right? So I'm totally up for doing a more value add deal at the beginning of a cycle. Let's, let's just rewind 2010. I'm happy to do a value add deal because if it has a five year timeline or even a three year timeline to execute, but it took an extra two years, we got all that runway going. We can course correct before we take off, right? But in 2019, I was staying away from value add in 2015, 16, 19, whatever, because the runway is just, we don't know when it's going to end, but there's definitely, we've already been down a lot of it, right? So we cannot course correct as easily before we have a problem. So I'm going to start to look at more value add stuff when things stabilize a little bit more and get more into that in the coming years before I taper off of that again. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who don't know what value add is, Jeremy's talking about investments that have quite a, a large gap of improvements to be made uh, within the investment where uh, a lot of opportunity to massively increase the value of the, of the asset. Um, and that usually a lot of hard work comes along with that as well. Um, but then there's a lot of variables and a, a bit of risk in there too. So that's what Jeremy's yeah. talking about. Yeah, a little bit higher risk. You could still do it in the kind of the low to medium risk category. Um, you could do the, the more extreme value add is, you know, piece of land, you're going to develop it from scratch, get it entitled and build a building. And there's more risk mm -hmm. to that than we're buying a building. It's hundred percent occupied. And when people leave their units, we're going to rehab it and then target a little bit more money. Right. So that's, you can add some value, but you're still going to get a lot of cash flow and just everything in between. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and one thing I just want to point out and what I'm trying to suggest as well is that I do find that not many investors think really high level, really long-term and have this, like, uh, I was pointing all these things out to kind of give people ideas because I don't find too many people talking about the concept of I'm going to do value at the beginning of the cycle and not the end of the cycle. Right. But mm -hmm. I shift what I'm investing in depending where I am in the cycle. I was very specific about it last cycle. Um, Hard money, I mean, I invested in a bunch of hard money funds all the way up to 2015, but then I was afraid the runway was going to end there. We didn't know when it was going to end. So I stopped, right? But it's very important to be strategic to leverage the fact that we know it's cyclical and therefore design, design your strategy behind the fact that it's a cycle to maximize your potential outcome and to actually change what you're investing in depending on where we are in the cycle. And I just find there's not that many people that think high level like that, but it's very important too if you really want to maximize your, your um, potential outcome. And when you say the beginning of the cycle, are you talking about when uh, we're actually dropping down uh, in pricing or are you talking about when we've actually hit rock bottom when we're starting to come back up again? Okay, great question. So, uh, it, you know, historically, real estate moves slowly and it typically takes a year or two for prices to really bottom. So what you want to do is I'm going to take the last cycle because people can relate to it, right? 2009, extra cautious, right? Don't be very careful because prices are going down. You're trying to catch a falling uh, knife, okay? 2010, 
we're starting to get to the point of stability. So in 2009, if you're going to do something, you've got to get a pretty significant discount still to protect yourself. In 2010, you could start to get a very small discount and think, okay, we're getting towards the bottom. If it's going to be a long, long-term hold, really good you know, basis, right? Um, if it's going to be short-term and I got to add a lot of value to it, be careful because of the fact that like, if you bought it wrong and you, know, you, you may be just buying it at the discount that's going to take away, the, the, uh, it's going to be, the padding is going to be taken away because you didn't buy it at the bottom. So you have to be more cautious. But again, protect yourself in the first year or two after the downturn starts. And you don't have to wait until the third year, for example, right? Because you may be missing opportunities. In fact, you, I, I was still going to do opportunities this year if they make perfect sense, right? But they've got to make sense. You just got to have a strategy to protect yourself depending on where exactly where we are in that cycle. So there's definitely ways to invest in the first couple of years. You've got to be more conservative. Uh, but I, I wouldn't rule out doing it. Just be very careful. And then once you, once you confidently feel that we're at the bottom, then you're like, okay, like different landscape now. Exactly. Then you could do a market rate deal and feel very good about it, right? Um, I usually prefer to get a discount no matter what or what, what part of the cycle we're at. That always makes me feel better. But you can at least know that if you get a 2 or 3 or 5% discount, you don't need the 10 to 20% discount to really protect yourself. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Um, and I want to come back to like real estate and investments uh, in a minute here, but I just want to quickly, before we were talking about oil, now I know that like it was, I don't know, it was about six weeks ago, uh, oil prices hit negative and at yes. some point throughout the day they went to about negative $40 and, and yes. that actually means that people were paying uh, for people to take away their oil from them because it was costing yes. them too much to store and everything like that. That had never happened. Um, that there was, it was like oil Mageddon, absolutely crazy. What kind of effects do you think that we can see from that in the future? Is this going to, we've already seen uh, fuel prices at the gas stations drop. Um, can we expect those to go back up? Do you think that it's going to become really expensive? Is this going to cause problems in our supply chains because, you know, trucks and ships burn oil? Uh, what's your kind of two cents on, on all of that? Great question. So very difficult um, asset class or commodity to predict because there's a lot of geopolitical factors involved. And actually, there's a lot of manipulation supply by OPEC to kind of target certain prices. So I'm just going to put that out there as a disclaimer. So very hard to predict. But I think we saw a one-time incident. And to be clear, for those of you who aren't familiar, these prices are all futures prices. And what that means is that a contract that somebody holds as a futures contract is a promise to actually take delivery of that physical commodity, whether it's chicken, pork, or oil, right, at a certain date. What happened in this instance is that the person who was planning on just trading it away and bought a certain amount couldn't actually uh, couldn't afford to keep it because they couldn't find buyers. So what was happening is that at any cost, they had to get rid of it because they don't have storage for it, right? And the storage is very full because of our supply of oil right now across the board. It's very hard to find storage. So people were just saying, I'm going to pay you to take my oil because I literally have nowhere to put it and I have a contract that I have to take it from someone at this date, right? So it's a huge problem. I think it was a one-time problem due to a very high level of supply at that time and also demand shock, right? that happened from COVID around the world. And um, what I'm expecting for oil is actually probably going to surprise you, but um, we went from an oversupply situation to a ton of oil production in the U.S. having to shut down as a result of nowhere to put it, okay? And what happens is that when that gets shut down, most of the wells in the U.S., I shouldn't say most, but most of the production in the U.S. comes from deep wells and not shallow wells. And I'm an amateur in oil, so hopefully I got this right. Um, I invested in shallow wells. They're much easier to turn on. 
you don't have as much potential cost or um, risk to turning them off and on. Uh, and so they don't produce nearly as much. The fracking and everything else that goes really deep that I'm talking about, much more complicated to turn off and on, much more expensive to turn off and on, much higher risk that when you go turn it on, it doesn't turn on or has a lot of costs associated with it or damage. Try to turn it on because of the pressure, right? So in my opinion, we're going from a situation where we're currently oversupplied. And I think that we're going to actually swing the other way because it was so extreme. And what happened in turning things off and on and everything else is that I think eventually prices are going to get the best of us. And I think we're actually, that's actually why I think prices are as high as they are already. I think the markets try to predict that because otherwise in a recession like this, prices based on supply and demand wouldn't be at the $40 price that they're at right now. They'd actually be at about 20, okay, 25, like they were last time. So I think we're already seeing some anticipation of that. And I'm afraid that prices are going to run up on us beyond that 40 to 50 range even because I think next year when we start to get a bit of a recovery um, and then start to dig our way out of this recession, we're going to have a lack of supply to meet the demand of the growing economy. So um, in the meantime, I think prices will probably be, if I had to guess, between 25 and 40, depending on how bad this uh, actual downturn is as far as demand goes until then. But it's unfortunately, eventually, the prices are going to creep up much more coming out of this recession and possibly even during the recession continuing than I think we'd normally see because of that weird supply and demand problem we're having. Which means that consumers could expect to be paying more at the gas stations and, yeah. and probably paying more for food because, you know, the truck companies are taking more to deliver. And then there's even the supply chain issues with um, a lot of factories and production slowing down with, with other things as well. So, yeah, I, I, I would even go so far as to say that, unfortunately, we're not getting the normal benefit that this type of recession would have and that we're not at $20 and therefore the pricing pressure is still there right now because of the $40 with all those items, right? There's a good argument to be said that not only would the gas be cheaper, but then prices would be easier to be kept at level or reduced in some cases based on that $20 oil, but we're not seeing it right now, even though we should be. So that's an unfortunate side effect of what's been happening with the supply and demand problems and imbalance. And I'd be surprised if we really get back to 25 or 30. Uh, I think the market's just forecasting that we're gonna have this problem. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for your two cents on that. I want to jump back to real estate now. Now, I know that you couldn't, we wouldn't have the time to be able to dig into what to look for in each type of investment, but there's one, as passive investors, there's always one common denominator in the investment and that is the operators. Um, so obviously we want to look at the investment. We want to make sure if it's a mobile home park, it has all the right characteristics of a mobile home park and the right market. That's the right investment, all of that. Um, and that's one piece of the investment. Um, and this is something that I tell all of my investors is when you're, when you're out there looking at passive investments, the, the actual investment piece, looking at the asset itself, should take in 50% uh, or less of your decision-making power. And then 50% or more of your decision-making power should be who are the people behind the investment? Who's controlling it? Who's operating it? Who's making the decisions? Because you and I both know that, that person could take an average investment and, and make it a phenomenal investment if they're a really good operator, or they could take what seems to be a really, really good investment and poorly perform if they're an average operator. So what do you look for in an operator and how do investors figure this out and navigate through this and find good operators? Sure, yeah, and I couldn't agree with you more. I tell people that as important as the building and location, everything else is, because it's all critical, it's what your actual asset is, the person you're making a bet on to the people are more important, right? Because you're giving up control when you're passive. and 
I like, I'm just going to give a quick example for those of you who don't quite understand how that sounds possible even because if you're investing in a piece of real estate, you think what you're investing in is the most important thing, but it's actually the people that are more important. So, um, you know, I live a couple blocks south of Beverly Hills in LA and a lot of people have heard of Rodeo Drive. So I like using this really easy example, right? I can invest in the best building on Rodeo Drive in the middle of Rodeo Drive, right? With the best tenants that would have been there typically forever. But if the person managing it that I made a bet on runs it into the ground, doesn't do what they're supposed to do as far as managing the building and, and whatever the contract terms of, tenant's going to leave, building's going to be vacant, we're going to give the keys back to the bank, we're going to get foreclosed because we won't be able to pay the loan. And then it didn't matter that I was in the best building with the best tenants in the middle of Rodeo Drive, right? That's how important the operator is. So I hope that for those of you who are kind of not really figuring that out, that, that's such an easy example of how important who you're making a bet on is. Um, so to Bryce's point, this is a topic we can go on for like hours on, on its own in terms of really picking apart his due diligence. But um, so from a really high level, um, what I like to tell people is, and this lines up with my personality as well. So that's part of why I kind of take this approach and other people can see it differently is I like to try to find operators who are both experienced, obviously, in that specific asset class, but who are looking to under promise and over deliver by being conservative people with conservative assumptions to try to build long-term relationships with investors. I want that mentality versus the mentality of, I'm going to make a really nice brochure with a really nice marketing piece. And by the way, those people can make nice brochures too, but the people who are trying to use really big numbers and make things look really good to attract investors um, purposely and being aggressive with the assumptions that they use and the numbers that they're using, right? And even maybe focusing on the marketing and the numbers instead of like trying to really set correct expectations, that mentality could point to someone who is just trying to find as many investors as they can. And they don't really care if they build a long-term relationship because they have a marketing machine. They're going to go on to the next investor for the next deal if they have to, and they're going to find them. Right. And then you've got the wrong expectation set. You may not hit that, that, those particular projections. So from a high level, I like to try to find someone conservative. Now, the question is, how do you work that out? How do you know who you're investing with? Right. And so it's a combination of, um, you know, looking at some of the data that's presented to you in the summary that you get, including the, the actual numerical assumptions in the projections. So for example, you know, what is, how does a person determine what exit price they're going to get, right? One person could say, I'm going to get 8 million for a building. The next one says 10. What's the difference, right? And why is that? Um, what rent increase assumption is somebody using? Does that seem fair to you or does that seem aggressive to you? Because in the end of the day, all these things add up to a very different level of projected returns, but literally just projections. They're made up, right? They're assumptions. So you've got to read between the lines at looking at all the numbers to determine, is this person conservative or not? Have they, have they um, mapped out a conservative overview for people to create that under promise and over deliver to have long-term relationships with investors they want to invest with them again, right? So that's kind of what I look for. Now that's on the I call that more the objective side and that you can look at numbers and make that determination of one deal versus the other, like right next to them. Right. These and on that, on that note too. So if, if there's an operator that's presenting to you, what is probably the worst case scenario and it still looks attractive, then that's a, that's pretty attractive to you. 
because you're looking, oh, like worst case scenario, we'll still like make this much money and it's still a good investment. Yes. Excellent. Right. As opposed to like, hey, I'm leading with like the best case scenario and it looks really good, but you know, if one or two of these things don't line up, there's not a chance they can hit those numbers. Exactly. And, and another thing that tells you is that, oh, they're buying it right. Because if it is the case that the worst case scenario is that we're going to do okay, something's right. So mm-hmm. I'll give you an example that RV park I mentioned that I invested in in December. There's no debt, which is very unusual, but we bought at a really high cap rate. That group could have chosen to put debt on it and had crazy returns, but would have increased the risk. What I love about that deal that made me want to move forward and aside from the team is the fact that they specifically chose not to have debt because the returns are going to be more than enough. And yet not having the debt greatly reduced the risk of us mm-hmm. going into a downturn, right? Yep. And so that decision they made told me they're conservative in a very big way. Otherwise, because they would have made more money themselves as well, as well as investors by taking on that leverage, right? So it tells you a lot about their personality as an example, right? An easy one to understand. So, so that's the objective piece of it, the numbers, right? Anybody can compare apples to apples numbers on a similar asset and get an idea of someone being conservative or not. And uh, there's a lot more we can get into on that, but that's high level. Mm-hmm. Subjectively, and this is the harder part, is who you're making a bet on. You've got to read between the lines to try to figure that out. So I'm going to give you some quick examples. Um, First thing is, uh, you know, some of the verbiage in the, in the executive summary, how is it written? So you may have one uh, summary that says, um, and this is just an easy example to understand. Um, the building is currently 100% occupied, but we assumed 8% vacancy to be conservative, you know, even though it's been 100% occupied for the last five years to have conservative projections for investors, right? Mm-hmm. The next person can say the building is you know, 95% occupied, but we're assuming it's 3% vacant because we're in such a strong area. It's right near the train. This is a really growing economy and blah, 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 right? The exact opposite mentality, right? One person's understating the likely returns. The other person's overstating the likely returns. You want, but that you could only get by reading between the lines just understanding why that vacancy is there. And if the vacancy is there, don't assume it's because someone's conservative. There could be another reason. There could be another building coming online right next door where they're afraid they're going to lose tenants to, et cetera, right? So you've got to always yeah. read between the lines. But you can read the executive summary and sometimes in reading between the lines and how it's written, you can get a sense if someone's conservative or not or aggressive, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, phone calls with sponsors, asking questions. Sometimes I literally ask questions to them. And I, in fact, I would ask that question, why is there an 8% vacancy, right? And then, you know, whether it's 8%, 10%, 4%, how they answer is almost more important than what the answer is, right? Like, oh, we really want to be conservative for investors. So that was one thing we did. We took it to, to, you know, 8%, even though it's currently 97% and it's been 97% for the past five years. Yeah. That answer, and you can ask, you know, um, if, even if the assumptions look okay, say, why did you, why did you make this assumption? And it's, you don't even care about what the answer is because it looks right to you, but it's more how they're answering to you you know, where you actually can read between the lines. So those are very important things. Another great example that I like to use is reading between the lines. So uh, I'm going to give you an example of the retail shopping center because this will be a little easier to visualize. So when I go on site, uh, I always uh, meet someone in person on site. If, if I've never invested with them before, I always meet them once in person for a gut check. But I always prefer to be on an in-person site visit when I can. Um, and the reason is because I, there's two different types of sites visits. And it tells you, is somebody really thorough and how on top of this deal are they, right, to me. You get one where somebody says, um, okay, um, meet me at the retail strip center at 11 a.m. We'll meet at the subway, right, in the strip center, 
and then I'll give you a tour of the property. You meet them there, they walk you down, they show you all the shops, they tell you a little about the center, and they say, yeah, so this is it. You know, this is an interesting deal. And it might be pretty thorough, but there's the other type of tour you can get where the person says, I'm picking you up from your hotel at 1030. I'm going to drive you to the property. And oh, by the way, when they pick you up, they're showing you every single competitive center along the way, or at least what's easily seen along the way, and explaining to you why they've already thought about that center and why the makeup is different, why they're more competitive, or why our center is going to do okay despite that competition, right? And then they're driving you and they're showing you the parking lot and what still needs to be fixed on it and everything else. And then you walk and then you have a lunch with them and then they give you more information about the demographics of the area, et cetera. That is a completely different person you're dealing with. Right. And you may, and you may even be looking over some paperwork with them as you're driving and talking and you might be going through some profit and losses and checking out some leases and stuff like yes. that too. Right. So like that tells you that someone is much more detailed than the other person. It doesn't tell you necessarily other things, but it tells you that they're more detailed. And if I apples to apples, but I want to make a bet on someone who's more detailed or less detailed, more detailed, right? So if everything else checks out, but that is complete reading between the lines, right? Because mm -hmm. now you're trying to get a sense of who I'm making a bet on here. Oh, I love it. This guy's so thorough. He's driven up and down all the competitive centers. And I understand why he really likes this one, right? The other person just said, oh, price looks good. I kind of like the makeup of the tenants in the center but hasn't necessarily taken an additional step to devise a strategy that's going to increase the probability of success for investors, right? By deciding that's the exact one. So those are just some easy, quick examples, hopefully, to give you an idea of why it's so important to understand who you're making a bet on and some ways you can do it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Awesome. Is, is there any other sort of key things that we'd look at um, in an operator? Uh, well, so... Always do background checks. Um, this is something I unfortunately find that most uh, investors don't do. Uh, they save me a few times. I have a strict rule. And in fact, another part of that rule is every time you invest in someone, do another background check on them, right? Because, you know, I'm, real life example, I've invested with someone the first time I ever invested with um, lifelong friends in my family. I invested with them over 20 times since 2002, okay? Mm -hmm. Just recently came to find out that one of the three partners actually took some of the reserve money that they weren't supposed to take and we're in the middle of sorting all that out right now that may have not shown up on a background check necessarily because I went to flag right but the point is that you know whoever it is and this is like 20 this is by the way 18 years later that I invested with them right so the point is that like and this is you know just to be clear like that's the first time that's ever happened to me but it can happen right that's why you diversify and it's not catastrophic but it happened and so we're dealing with it so bottom line is is that um, if no matter how many times you invest with someone, you should always do a background check on them to make sure that something new doesn't come up that starts to show a flag or a pattern that you weren't aware of when you did your first background check with them six years ago, right? Because things change. So background checks are absolutely key. I run them every time on somebody. It's a hard rule that I have. And in fact, another read between the lines that I do, um, when I go to do a background check on somebody, if their name is fairly uncommon, right? It's not Jane Smith then I probably don't need anything at all from them to figure out who they are. Like my name, Jeremy Roll, I might be probably the only one in California. If not, I might be the only one in Los Angeles. If not, I might be the only one who's my age in Los Angeles, right? Mm -hmm. so, so, and you can even match up with the phone number that you have and the email and everything else. But I always ask for the person's name, date of birth, and home address. And I don't ask for social because I think that's over the line, but I ask for the rest of that. And Depending on how they react, it could tell you, like, are they trying to hide something or not, you know? And then most importantly, I say to them, before I run this background check, is there anything I need to know 
that you want to share before I run it that, you know, to explain something in advance. Now I've seen people give me really good explanation as to why they were caught with a gun in their, um, you know, in their, uh, in their, they were stopped and had a gun in their trunk that they were licensed to use, but they weren't licensed to, to transport and they didn't realize. Right. And that's pretty reasonable, but it was good that they explained it to me in advance. Right. Um, I've, I've seen other instances, an investor called me three months ago, maybe four months ago at this point, pre-COVID, and said to me, just a background check on somebody, they had a bankruptcy in 2007, whenever it was, they didn't tell me about it. It was a while ago, but they didn't tell me about it. What do you think? We were like, look, we can't know for sure why they didn't tell you about it, but we do know they didn't tell you about it. They may have thought that it got wiped off of their background check because it's been more than seven years and it gets wiped off of their credit, right? And they're maybe hoping it would be just swept off the grant under the rug. But is it worth taking the risk on the person who didn't tell you about it? Because that's quite a major thing to tell somebody about. And there could have been a great explanation for it even. But the fact that they're hiding it or didn't proactively tell you about it when you gave them the chance might be worth going on to the next person, right? Because there's a lot of deals out there, right? So again, that's another reading between the lines to learn something about somebody because without having asked them that in advance and given you that opportunity, you may have just said to them, well, why were you bankrupt? And they may have given you a really good answer. You would have moved on. But now you learned a little bit more because you're trying to read between the lines and be very selective in how you approach that. Awesome. Awesome. Great advice, mate. And, and I'm going to move through these next question, questions a little bit quicker because I totally um, respect your time. Um, yeah. Do you want to do you want to touch quickly on uh, one of the biggest mistakes that you've made as an investor over the last 18 years? Sure. Um, let me use a really easy one, even though it's not applicable for real estate. And it's actually applicable to an extent. In the 2000s, I was much younger, newer investor, and I invested in uh, several startups, call it four or five. Okay. And I was getting enamored by the ideas, didn't know the team is very well. I love the concepts. I'm like, I got to make a bet on this concept. Great idea. Most of those went to zero. Not all of them, but most of them. Okay. Um, in the 2010s, when I made a handful of startup investments, call it 10, um, I did the exact opposite. I said, I am not investing in a startup ever again unless I have to make a bet on a person. And I kind of like the idea well enough that I could see it doing well. My hit rate so far has been the exact opposite. It's pretty much almost 100%. Some stuff's done unbelievably well. Um, and I think it was that one switch, okay? And it's funny because we talked about how important it is to make a bet on people, right? And the extreme example of that is a startup that doesn't have a hard asset behind it, right? Because it's bad enough if you make a bet on the wrong person, you have to swap out the manager, but you have this hard asset to actually fall back on. Mm -hmm. But when you got a business, forget it. You got nothing to fall back on typically, right? Very little in the way of assets typically. So that's the extreme example of just how important it is to focus on who you're making a bet on, right? And that is a really good learning for real estate as well. But um, that's just an easy example, like as one paradigm shift that I made that really changed a lot and that emphasized the even more importance of that for me in real estate than I even had before. Okay. And, and, and over the last, you know, 18, 20 years as an investor, um, what's the biggest life lesson that you've learned as a result of being an investor? And it may not even have something directly relating to investments. It just could be something that you just really noticed from being an investor over the last 20 years. Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, uh, two things, two things stand out. Warren Buffett has a great quote, you know, uh, not meant to sound the wrong way, but I think it's something like, you know, be greedy when others are fearful and be fearful when others are greedy. I cannot tell you how key that is when it comes to investing. 
It's unbelievable to watch unfold. It takes a long time to understand it because you have to go through cycles to really see it happen. This previous cycle was a great example of it. And how I told you that I tried, so like I told you just now, I said, oil seems like a great deal right now. Like everyone's scared of it. And I'm like saying, oh, it's a great time to invest in oil, right? Um, and so that's the best time to invest when people are scared, but you've got to be very careful when everyone's being really greedy. And that's what happened a lot at the end of this past cycle. And that's what made me stay away from it, right? Was the pricing and just understanding that high level concept. So that can really have a huge long-term impact on how good or bad of your outcome is as an investor in general over time. Okay. Yeah. That's number one. Mm-hmm. Number two is, um, God, investing passively is challenging because one of the hardest parts of my day is networking to find opportunities. Most of the opportunities are not allowed to be publicly marketed. And the hardest part of my, my past investing is finding opportunities. That's what I try to do all day long. And it's all from networking. What I find interesting though, and I don't mean to sound like a conspiracy theorist, is that my opinion is that probably a lot of the lobbying by the banks and, it, uh, and the investment banks um, create a situation where like, you're not allowed to publicly market these opportunities because Wall Street doesn't want to lose your money from their stock portfolios that they're managing and they get these assets under management fees from, right? Mm-hmm. So I consider passive investing to be a very small percentage of what people are doing, but you're, doing, you're staying away from the herd, right? You want to stay away from the herd when it comes to like being greedy when others are fearful. Same concept. It's the exact same concept. But the concept of cash flow seems so foreign to so many people because it's not allowed to be marketed and people don't even know it's there as an option. But often, some of the best things you'll find in life are the ones that are staying away from the herd and Mm -hmm. thinking differently. And the thinking differently and staying away from the herd is just as an investor, hugely important can make huge differences as far as your long-term uh, goals and, and, you know, success. Yeah. And I believe Warren Buffett's got a saying about that too. He says only dead fish go at the flow. So like if everybody else is doing it, like, you know, try to swim upstream or something. So. Well, I've never even uh, heard that one. That's a good yeah, one. Yeah. Yeah. So mate, like everybody sees freedom differently. We've all got our different view of what freedom's like. What's the ultimate freedom lifestyle for you? And, and what is, what's most important to you? And, and what does freedom mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I am for, I'm very fortunate. I'm leading what I consider to be my freedom. My freedom was getting out of the corporate world because I knew it wasn't the right place for me. And I've been in that freedom now. Uh, it's been actually this month, June, it's been 13 years. I got out in 2007 in June. And so I'm very lucky in that respect. And once you have that freedom, it's very easy to take it for granted. But the fact of the matter is, like I said to my wife the other week, I said, you know, uh, and I'm sorry, like, I don't mean this for anyone who's working. I was there. I've been there for years. So it's going to sound like it's not meant to like make you upset. But I said to my wife, July 4th is coming up on the weekend. Should I take off the week of the six? It seems like a good time. And what are the kids doing? You know, and like, she's like, yeah, that's a good idea. I was like, okay. So I just. I'm my boss. I took that time off. I didn't have to get it approved by somebody. I don't have a certain amount of vacation days, right? And I work my ass off. I want to be clear. I work day and night to be as successful as possible. So this is not a person that just at the beach all the time. I'm the exact opposite, to be clear. And I'm also type A personality. But the bottom line is, is that the fact that I can make that choice was just huge and so different than anyone listening to this who was in the corporate world in that position, right? I was in that position for a long time. It was frustrating to me. So the free, the cat, again, I, I don't want to sound like an infomercial, but the reality is cash flow has just changed my life in so many positive ways. And it's given me the freedom. That's what's giving me the cash flow wasn't coming in to support 
my cost of living, I wouldn't have that freedom. So to me, it's just all about cash flow and almost every penny I put in with the odd exception of a startup is back into cash flow to continue to build my snowball. So I never have to go back to the corporate world so that I can continue to have this freedom that we're talking about. So you can spend time with your family and do the things that you want to do. It, exactly. Yeah. It's about having control over your time and doing what you want to do. Mm -hmm. And so you are a busy man. I mean, I, I know I've had like discussions with you and you're doing like, you know, three things at once. And I'm like, man, like I would really appreciate you even squeezing that time in and I appreciate you squeezing this time in too. Um, do you have some like daily rituals or, or like weekly habits that helps you stay on track or helps you remain focused or helps you remain stress-free or, or, or anything like that? So I have a very regimented schedule. I have a schedule link that people can use if they want to schedule a call with me. And that's a very specific time block during the day. Um, I have, I deal with emails in the morning, emails at night, unexpected calls just before these calls and just after these calls. So it's very, very structured to try to keep things in check. Um, one important thing I do is uh, the night before uh, the next day, I'll actually look at the calls I have coming up and actually go back and take notes about, um, who I'm talking to tomorrow, just to put some context to it. If it's someone who's new or whatever, I don't know them well. And then I'll have that email time delayed to me in the morning. And so I'll be able to look at it in the morning, just read off the bullets of, and sometimes I do this a week or two in advance once my schedule fills up. Um, and so I get that sent to myself in the morning as a, as a refresher. Um, I'm a very big proponent of time delaying emails to get people emails at the right time where the highest probability is that they'll actually open it and read it, whether it's 9 a.m. Often I'll ask a person, you know, when's the best time to read? I got one person on the East Coast who says, if you're going to email me, email me at 2.30 a.m. Pacific because I get in the office at 5.30 and for the first hour, it's really quiet and I'm going to reply to you within that hour. And it works like clockwork every time. Another person in, it, in California in L.A. who does the same thing at 7 a.m. So you got to ask to find these things out. But if you want to optimize things, you got to kind of think ahead like that. So I use a lot of time delaying of emails. Another thing I do to give myself more time on the weekend, if I get an email on Saturday morning and it's not urgent, I don't necessarily respond to it right away because then if I respond, that person may respond Saturday afternoon and then it becomes more work during the weekend. If I want to spend that time with my kids and my wife, I'll time delay the response to Monday at 9 a.m. Mm -hmm. And now I've avoided additional work for myself. So there's a lot of these little things that I do to try to optimize my time. I also am on the Stairmaster while I'm on calls, which is, you know, not necessarily a good thing, but I try to maximize my day. Um, so there's a lot of specific structure. And I only do that with people I know well who can deal with the noise. So it's a very, very structured day that's, that's the same structure every day. Yeah. Well, you definitely managed to remain organized and remain cool, calm, and collected. Actually, I don't even think I've ever seen you stressed out, man. So, <laughs> so. It's kind of rare. I have to be, be honest. It's, it's yeah. It's also my personality, but it is rare that it really happens. So Yeah. And what are you most excited about working on over the next 12 months? Uh, well, I have to say, you know, for someone who's been sitting on the sidelines since the end of 2016, for the most part, it's a long, frustrating wait to wait for an eventual downturn for a better time to invest. I'm excited about the fact that I think of as of next year, there's going to be a lot better time to invest and I can be able to redeploy a lot more money and start to build up more cash flow again. Um, and so... Very, very excited for what the future holds in the next year or two, you know, despite the fact that we're currently going through very tough times. And I'm just giving you, you know, my perspective as an investor. Um, I had the same challenges between 2005 and 2008. I was telling people there was going to be housing crash. People thought I was nuts. I was young. Uh, like, didn't nobody wanted to hear it. Um, 2017, 18, 19, 
I was telling people I was on the sidelines. A lot of people were like, what are you doing? I'm, you know, I'm doing a ton of investing and it's, it's literally three or four years where you're quote unquote wrong. Right. Cause people are like mm -hmm. investing in something in 2016 exiting in 2019. They've done super well. Right. Mm -hmm. So you're wrong, but it takes a long term to people discover, Oh no, you were kind of right. It's a cycle and it really did end at some point. Right. So it's an agonizing wait. That wait is now over. It's been very frustrating in the last couple of years. And now I'm becoming much more optimistic and very happy this timing is coming now. That's awesome. That's great. And, uh, you know, there's been things with the lockdown and everything like that, which has stopped live events. I know you guys, uh, co you're, you're the co-host and creator of the Intelligent Investors Real Estate Conference in LA. Um, I was there in the beginning of this year. Absolutely amazing events. Uh, great events, great venue, world-class speakers, world-class investors. And I actually, the interesting thing that I really liked about it, and I've been to a lot of real estate events, most real estate events, most real estate um, uh, meetings, they focus heavily on single family residences and fix and flips and wholesales. Um, Intelligent Investors Real Estate Conference. I mean, that was like, we're talking about lots of different um, niches and a lot of areas where really savvy people are being successful in real estate. There was a lot of commercial real estate there, uh, um, a, lot of, a lot of different type investment models that you were discussing. Um, are you guys, uh, with all of this that's going on, are you guys still on track to host that live event in 2021 um, or are you kind of on the sideline with that right now great question so we came this close to signing uh, resigning the venue before COVID happened thank god and um, we've been reassessing since so where we landed now and it's not official because we haven't launched it yet but there's a high probability that we're going to do a virtual conference for 2021 january right for the similar timing we like doing it at the beginning of the year because now we're kind of like you know, the outlook for 2021 for the next year type thing. And you are right. What we focus on with that conference is two things. We only invite people we've known for years that we really respect and we know are really good people, both as sponsors and as uh, panelists and speakers. So we're very picky, just like we are with, with Phoebe, with who's speaking. And we really have to know them very, very well, and especially no sales pitches. And mm -hmm. we also try to get a really big cross-section purposefully of asset classes and conversations going. Um, just to appeal to the really broad audience. So I'm, I'm really glad you noticed that because it's, we try to do it purposely, obviously. So we're open to launch it in 2021. I expect we're probably going to launch it like via email to those who've already attended. Probably, I, I don't want to make a firm commitment, but hopefully by the end of July, beginning of August, you'll see emails about that. Um, we're going to try virtual, see how it goes, because I don't think we have much other option probably. And uh, we'll do the best we can virtually to keep it as entertaining as possible. And we're going to have, I think one of our biggest focuses beyond what I mentioned for this one is how do we maximize networking? Because when you're going to an in-person event, there's hundreds of people there. Networking is a huge part of the value that you're paying for and then you're spending your time there for, right? Mm -hmm. Much harder to achieve virtually. We are currently brainstorming as many possible ways that we can facilitate networking as possible, possible breakouts, possible one-on-one -on -one Zooms with actual panelists that you can schedule for. All these things, I can't tell you what's necessarily going to be final as far as what happens, but I can promise you that we're not doing this unless we have the way, a way to facilitate a lot of networking because otherwise we think a lot of the value is going to be gone. So yeah. we're going to make that happen. And that's a challenge that is probably like even a little bit frustrating right now, but I'm, well, as you're saying this, I'm looking out in the future. That's something that could be very valuable in the future because who knows how long we'll be in situations where these lockdowns happen and people are working more remotely and whatnot. So, you know, solving that problem is actually, you know, going to put you ahead of the curve. So that's great.
yeah, we're going to give it a shot. We're, we're committed to making it happen. We're committed to providing the best content possible as we always do, but we're also committed to trying to figure out how to maximize the networking within, you know, the parameters that we have. And we're looking at a lot, we're not, in fact, we're just, we're not just looking at zoom, which is actually unlikely we're going to use. We're looking at different other platforms we can use that actually have better tools for networking specifically. Mm. We're putting a lot of time into that. We're hopeful we'll make it happen. Awesome. Well, I'm keen to hear more about that one. And uh, one last question here. Um, what's the biggest piece of advice that you could give uh, listeners out there, viewers out there that are looking to achieve financial freedom? Like, what's the one biggest piece of advice that you could give to those guys today? I would say slow and steady wins the race. It's that simple. Um, you know, none of this is a get rich quick scheme. That's not realistic. And I'll give you a great example. Someone calls me up tomorrow and says, I have $10 million to invest. I just need $500,000 a year to live off of. That's only 5% return. Seems pretty reasonable. Probably going to do much better than that, right? How am I going to make that happen? I would literally say to them, and they were recording this in June, 2020. First of all, I don't recommend you look at stuff right now for the most part. So you may have to wait until next year as an example, right? Then you got to be properly diversified. So you're going to have to put that across X number of opportunities, whatever their opinion is of that. I would say at least 20 as you know, optimally say, right. That's just my opinion. Well, how long is it going to take them to find 20 opportunities across asset classes, geographies and operators, which is how I like to diversify that they're being really picky about that. They're being very careful about right now with COVID, right? That could be, you know, two, three plus year type of horizon before they're there. And that's the person that just literally has the lottery ticket in their hand, just won the lottery. So this is a long-term approach. If you want to do it correctly, keep your risk as low as possible, be properly diversified, especially at the current timing. So take it slow. On the other hand, if you're in a position where you have money, you can deploy over time. It's a type of thing you can achieve over time as far as really building a ton of passive cash flow. If you're calculated about it and follow a plan and give yourself a pretty long horizon, right? Most people I talk to are trying to get out of the corporate world. Think of it as a five or 10 year type of goal. That's a lot of time. It takes a lot of patience, but patience will pay off. So, um, you know, think of it as a long-term horizon to, to be realistic and it's completely achievable if you think of it on a long-term basis. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And so for the, for the listeners out there who want to keep the conversation going with you and follow up with you, how do we get in touch with Jeremy? Absolutely. So the best way to reach me is by email. Uh, my email is uh, jroll, J-R-O-L-L at roll investments, R-O-L-L investments with an S.com. So jroll at rollinvestments.com. I am happy to talk to anybody any way I can help. So if you're brand new and just want to brainstorm, happy to help. If you're an experienced investor that wants to network and exchange information, fantastic. If you're an operator that has opportunities, happy to talk to you. If you're another investor group that has, wants to network uh, with mine, happy to talk to you. Like I, I'm happy to network with anybody and help anyone, anyone in any way that I can. So don't hesitate to reach out to me. That's awesome. And, and I know you on a personal level and on a professional level, and some people say that, and I know you really mean it. So thank you very yes. much, uh, Jeremy, for joining us today. Thanks for all of your knowledge. Thanks for being vulnerable and willing to go anywhere. And um, I think there's like so many takeaways there. Uh, I'm assuming that everybody got a ton out of it. So thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. I just hope this is helpful for everybody. So thanks for having me.
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that wraps it up for today, guys. So I hope you guys got a lot lot out of that. Make sure to interact with this podcast too. So if you're listening on YouTube, uh, on the Freedom Hack Radio YouTube channel, leave some comments below. Let us know what you think. Give us some feedback. If you have any follow-up questions, let us know. Um, And make sure to subscribe too. If you really digged it, pass it on to everybody else. The more people that know about this podcast, the more people that can listen to it and they can watch it, um, the more people we can help. Because I'm really committed to people living a freedom lifestyle of time freedom, location freedom, and financial freedom. And I know you guys can all do it and you all absolutely deserve it. So thank you very much for tuning in today. Um, Make sure to tune in next week and until then live large and live free